This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 18th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Hal Weaver talks about the latest results from the Pluto flyby. And Nala Rogers is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Nala Rogers. She's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on an iron-eating fungus. When I think about weathering rocks, I think about wind erosion, water erosion, but I don't think about all these tiny microbes gnawing away at stone. Nala, how does a hungry fungus take down a wild rock? Well, this type of fungus starts by releasing acid that breaks down the rock. And then it releases chemicals that bind to iron in the rock and extract it for the fungus to use as food. And after the fungus has stripped out all the iron, it sends out filaments to dig into the depleted rock and expose new surfaces. And these filaments are incredibly strong. The pressure at their tips can be a hundred times the pressure in a car tire. Hmm. Well, geologists know all about the existence of these rock eaters, but what they didn't know was how much rock they were eating until this new study. What did they do differently in this work to figure this out? In the past, researchers have studied how fungi interact with minerals by mixing them all together in a solution in the lab. They figured this would be similar to what happens in soil and in natural spaces in the rock. But the new study looked at what actually happens on the surface of solid rock. They found that fungal cells suddenly release a whole bunch of acid and iron-stripping minerals after they attach to a rock surface. So the researchers think that fungi and other microbes might do a lot more weathering of rocks than anyone appreciated. I thought this was really interesting, that the fungus from this study was being considered for use in mining. How would that work? So the researchers were originally looking for microbes that could help them extract magnesium, because magnesium can be used to sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They cultured a whole bunch of different kinds of microbes in the lab, and they found that this particular fungus was the best at extracting magnesium and iron. The researchers think that the fungus could be a way of getting magnesium out of rocks without polluting the environment. So cool, the idea of replacing a bulldozer with a microbe. But this finding means something more fundamental than, you know, getting efficient mineral mining microbes. It could also have implications on a larger scale, right? 
Yeah, people used to think that microorganisms released their rock-digesting chemicals near the surface of the rock, but not usually right up against it. This study suggests that as much as half of bioweathering could take place right at the rock's surface, where it's easier for microbes to find the minerals they're looking for. So this means that organisms like fungi could be really important in cycling minerals through the ecosystem. Next up, we have a story on predicting hurricane damage with Twitter. Back in the fall of 2012, Hurricane Sandy was ravaging the Caribbean, hitting Jamaica, Cuba, the Bahamas, Haiti, and more, before swinging over to the U.S.'s east coast. Overall, the storm killed more than 200 people and caused over $70 billion worth of damage. This new study looks at that event and asks, how do we address storm damage in a timely manner? Why is getting to the right place at the right time a good idea, Nala? If you don't know which areas are the most damaged, you'll be sending help to the wrong places. You'll be wasting resources, and the people who need help the most might not get it in time. And what's the traditional way of figuring out the hardest-hit areas after a storm like this? Well, you might think the best way is to go out and survey the damage on the ground, but right after a natural disaster, that isn't practical. So instead, in the U.S., FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uses models to predict damage based on things like infrastructure and geography and the characteristics of the storm. And then it flies over the area to get more precise estimates. And now let's get to the Twitter part. What kind of data did the researchers get from Twitter? Well, they looked at all tweets between October 15th and November 12th in 2012 that contained keywords that might have to do with the hurricane. And those keywords were things like Sandy and Frankenstorm <laughs> and flooding. And then they looked at where those tweets came from. Some of the tweets were already tagged with location, but for the ones that weren't, the researchers tried to figure out where they came from based on other clues from the users in the tweet's content. Once they mapped these tweets, how did they line up with where the superstorm hit, where the damage was? Well, as you'd expect, people who were closer to the hurricane were more likely to tweet about it. The researchers also looked at which specific areas were most damaged based on how much was spent afterwards per capita on repairs. They found that there were more tweets in areas that suffered more extensive damage. And according to the study, tweets were slightly better at predicting storm damage than FEMA's own models. So if this works, it could be a really inexpensive way to figure out where to send aid after a natural disaster. This might have worked well in New York and New Jersey, but is it going to work in other parts of the world? It's too soon to know for sure. There are some potential pitfalls with Twitter data. Like, for example, people who tweet aren't representative of the whole population, and some tweets aren't even made by real people. They're generated automatically by these programs called Twitter bots. So the next step is probably to see if you can do the same kind of natural disaster mapping using other social media platforms like Facebook. Lastly, we have a story on a computer program that can play Go very, very well. All last week, the AI world and the Go world watched as Google's program AlphaGo played a series of five games with the human world champion. The human, Lee Sedol, won one game, but the other four went to the machine, making this the first time a computer has beaten such a high-ranked Go player. For some reason, many people thought for a very long time that computers could never play high-level Go. Why did they think that? Well, Go is a game where players put black and white stones on a 19 by 19 grid trying to surround their opponent's pieces. The rules are really simple, but they fan out into an incredibly complex strategy. It's, uh, it's more complex than chess. 
People made chess programs back in the 90s that can beat the best human players, but for chess, the computers can basically crunch their way through all the options using brute force. In Go, there are just too many possible arrangements to approach it that way. So the best Go players, they talk about Go like it's an art form. And until last week, some people believed that computers would never be able to master it. What's happening now? Why has computing suddenly been able to step up to this challenge? A couple things. The first happened in 2005 when some Go programs started incorporating a thing called Monte Carlo search trees, which essentially added a random element to the old brute force approach. And that brought them up to the level of good amateurs but not professional players. The next breakthrough happened recently when researchers added deep neural networks that could actually learn on their own from games played by the best human players. So whatever AlphaGo has been learning in the last few months just enabled it to beat one of the best players in the world. What I like about this story and the way that it was written was that the writer keeps saying, it's not about chess, it's not about Go. Why does he keep saying that it's not about the games? The author's arguing that the real issue isn't whether computers can play Go, it's how we choose to use this kind of technology and what it might turn into in the future. He thinks it was inevitable that computers would eventually get good enough to beat humans at Go, and now the big companies working on AI are going to move on to other things. That's what happened with chess. After IBM's chess program Deep Blue beat the world chess champion in 1997, Deep Blue never played another game. For companies like Google and Facebook, chess and Go are both just milestones on the way to developing something that would be a real game changer, like a personal AI assistant that actually works. So that's what the computing people get out of this. What do the people who play Go get out of this? Well, if we look at the example of chess, nothing much happened at first when Deep Blue beat the world champion. But a few years later, programs that could beat humans became widely available, and then the chess community had to figure out how to use them. Now people use chess software for things like training, and they have to get screened before entering tournaments to make sure that they're not cheating with a computer's help. So when Go software that can beat humans becomes widely available, the Go community will also have to figure out the best way to make use of it. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Nala? Well, we have a story on how fast snakes can strike, and we also have a story about a new dinosaur fossil that might help explain how T-Rex got so big. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story suggesting that we're spending too much money on some endangered species and not enough money on others. And we also have a story about a spacecraft that just took off to go and measure methane on Mars. So be sure to check those out on the site. Thanks, Nala. Thanks, Sarah. Nala Rogers is an intern on our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog at Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. After its exciting encounter with Pluto in July 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft began to slowly drip data back to us here on Earth over billions of miles of intervening space. This week, the first peer-reviewed results appear in five free science papers. I spoke with Hal Weaver about all the amazing results and his paper on the four small moons that we now know are spinning furiously around Pluto. No longer are these little pinpoints of light that we couldn't say very much about from the Hubble observations except to say that they were there. We had no idea how big they were until we finally flew close by with the spacecraft and actually could resolve their surfaces. And we got really great measurements on two of the satellites, uh, Nix and Hydra, which we discovered way back in 2005 with Hubble. But we had no idea how big they were, what their shapes were, how fast they were spinning 
or whether or not they were even rotating. The thought was that they would be synchronously rotating, just like Pluto and Charon are. They're, they're always see each other's face, the same face, just like on the Earth-Moon system. We only see one face of the moon, and the moon is only seeing one face of the Earth because we're synchronously rotating around each other. We thought the same thing might be true of uh, the small satellites, but it's not like that at all. It's almost like the opposite. These things are like spinning tops. The directions of their poles are completely, almost 90 degrees away from the direction of, the, of, of Pluto and Charon's pole, which are aligned with each other. And they have some serious elongation, too. They're like footballs with necks, right? They're, yeah. They're not I mean, little you know, spheres at all. That's right. I mean, you know, the funny thing is this whole question of the, you know, whether or not Pluto's a planet. Well, Pluto's almost perfectly spherical, like is one of the criteria that, that we ascribe to planets. These little satellites, uh, you know, there's no doubt they are not planets. <laughs> you know, they're highly elongated, but that's what we think is sort of typical of the small bodies of the solar system that are coming together, little chunks of material, boulder-like things that are having low-velocity collisions and producing a larger object, but they just don't have enough gravity to mold themselves into perfect spheres, which is what has happened with uh, Pluto and Charon, we think. But that's not happened at all with Nixon, Hydra, and Kerberos, and Styx. They're more like cometary nuclei, and most of the asteroids, the smaller asteroids, it's really amazing. You know, Hydra seems to be spinning in a period of only about 10 hours. <laughs> and it's how big is Hydra? Is that the one that's furthest out and spinning really yeah, fast? Yeah, it's you know, roughly around 40 kilometers. You know, it goes all the way from about 60 kilometers to about 35 kilometers in the small dimension mm -hmm. and the large dimension. It's like we got two different pairs of satellites. Nix and Hydra are nearly the same size and Styx and Kerberos are nearly the same size as well. What can what we've learned so far about these little moons, what can we use that information to kind of look deeper into the history of Pluto and the formation of its satellites? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we think the study of the small moons of Pluto is so important is because we do think that helps us to piece together the history of the Pluto system. And it's all sort of coming together now, now that we have the New Horizons data it, it seems like the entire system was formed during a giant impact, probably between four and four and a half billion years ago, near the time of the formation of the rest of the solar system, you know, when the Earth was formed. There was a giant impact. Two Pluto-sized objects had a glancing collision. And in the aftermath of that, you created two major bodies, which are Pluto and Charon, and then a debris disk. It's almost like we're watching the formation of a mini solar system. After that collision took place, you had the two larger objects, and they started to move farther outward, but they were moving out in this disk of material, and in that disk of material, the small satellites formed, and they're all nearly in the same plane, and they're all in almost circular orbits, and they're almost in perfect synchronicity with Charon's orbit around Pluto. Charon and Pluto, they rotate with about 6.4 day period, and multiples three, four, five, and six times longer are the periods of these small satellites. And, you know, when you go to try and explain the formation of a system like that, it just naturally comes out that those are preferred positions for those satellites to form. And that's what we're seeing. We're going to have to explain some of these funny things, like why are the poles tilted over like they are, and why are these objects rotating much faster than synchronous? That's the kind of thing that we're delving into. But also another big surprise was that we didn't know from the Hubble data 
we were completely uncertain as to what the reflectivity of the surfaces were. Were they very dark, like cometary nuclei? I mean, we've already heard been talking about how they're highly elongated, much like cometary nuclei are, but it turns out that they're the opposite of that. I'm sort of surprised myself at, at how bright the surfaces of all the satellites are. They, they reflect roughly 50 to 90% of the sunlight, and that's completely different from cometary nuclei, which they reflect about 4% or so of the light. But the cometary nuclei, for, especially for this, what we call the short period comets, are coming from the same region of the solar system, you know, the Kuiper belt. They're being ejected into the inner solar system. So there must be some kind of an evolutionary effect that's taking place. Cool. Well, you know, I was reading through the papers and I was looking at what we were publishing in science. And I just remember the excitement of the approach and the flyby and the data coming down. Are you maintaining that excitement now as you're starting to look deeper and deeper into the data? Do you still feel that way about what's going on? Well, I'll tell you, the excitement, you know, hasn't abated. I mean, it's just continuing. We've gotten down most of the best data because we have prioritized the, the downlink. But even in the last week, last two weeks, some of the stuff that's come down is just continuing to blow our minds. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it really is. I mean, it's, it's just, we're just scratching our heads and saying, oh my gosh, how could it have been any better? <laughs> that's amazing. So a lot of us heard about cryovolcanoes. We heard about, we saw beautiful images of Pluto and some of the moons. What might people not have heard about coming out in this group of papers? We've just been amazed by the diversity of the terrains on Pluto, and we've been you know, saying that for the past several months now, but what's really happening now is we're gaining an understanding of what's going on. And in the paper that will be coming out in science, we'll be exploring, first of all, giving you a, a, a good roadmap of the entire surfaces of, of Pluto and Charon, the sides that we're facing the spacecraft as we flew by, uh, in great detail and breaking them up into real geological maps. And they're, they're just completely different terrains from one place to another. The single biggest area on Pluto is this, you know, what we're informally calling Sputnik Planum, which is just a giant sheet of molecular nitrogen ice. And now we have enough data down to measure the composition of, the, of that region. And, and we can say for sure that it's mostly comprised of... Uh, molecular nitrogen ice, this very exotic ice. And the neat thing is that after we realize what's going on, it's almost like the molecular nitrogen ice on Pluto is playing the same role that water ice plays on the Earth. And because molecular nitrogen ice is so what we call volatile, even at extremely low temperatures, the minus 390 degrees Fahrenheit that's on the surface of Pluto, this molecular nitrogen ice is still relatively mobile. You can have these uh, glacier flows and sublimation and condensation cycles taking place at these extremely cold temperatures, and, and we're seeing all of that. It makes it sound like there's a whole water cycle like there is on Earth, but on Pluto. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the cool thing. And it's almost like a, a hydrological cycle, except that we call it a rheological cycle because it's not water ice, it's, it's molecular nitrogen, but it's, it's a similar kind of uh, cycle taking place. Really interesting. As we mentioned earlier, not all the data is here yet from the flyby. Um, how much longer until everything is downloaded, and how much is here already? 
Yeah, so it takes a long time to download all the data from the spacecraft because we're so far away and the antenna is only about six feet across and is sending the data more than three billion miles to get to the Earth. And so the fastest we can send the data down is about two kilobits per second. So 2,000 bits per second. Uh, you have to go a long, long way back in the Internet age to remember how slow that is, even though we have highly sophisticated telecommunication system. But by virtue of the fact that we have a small antenna and have to send it so far, it's, it's amazing that we can even see a signal from a spacecraft that's more than 3 billion miles away and has an antenna that's only 2.1 meters across. We're limited to about 2,000 bits per second maximum. And when you just count up all the images and all the spectra that we took, you know, it's roughly 40 gigabits of data, mm-hmm. not bytes, gigabits. And to send all of that down, it's going to take through roughly the end of October. But we have prioritized the downlink so that the most important stuff the stuff we think will be most important. Of course, we haven't seen those data yet, but from our knowledge of the Pluto system before we flew by and just taking the data that was taken closest to the time of closest approach to Pluto, sending that back first, we now have already extracted what we think is the best data from the Pluto encounter has, has already come down as of the end of February. But there's still lots of great stuff coming down. In fact, having to do with the satellites, we haven't yet gotten to the ground are spectra, infrared spectra of the surfaces of the small satellites, which is going to, I think, going to tell us exactly why they're so bright. We've proposed, hypothesized that the surfaces are icy. You know, they just have a water ice, almost a, a very clean water ice surface, and that's why they reflect most of the ice. But we don't have direct evidence of that yet. So the spectra will tell you more about the actual chemical makeup. That's right. The composition we, we get from the infrared spectra, we'll be able to see the absorption, the characteristic absorption lines of water ice. Very cool. Well, this question uh, might be impossible to answer, but how long do you think once you have the data all down, it's going to take to to go through it and extract you know, as much as we can from it? It's going to take years to squeeze out all you know the science from these data. It's a much more complicated system than we than we ever imagined. Not only did technically everything just work beautifully, perfectly as we flew by with the spacecraft and making thousands of observations as we passed Pluto. Pluto itself delivered. The Pluto system delivered. It had so much more complexity and diversity than we could have ever have imagined. These small objects in the outskirts of the solar system. It's not like you have a large body nearby that's, from its gravitational attraction, churning up the interior. You don't have that in the case of the Pluto-Sharon system. They're relatively isolated, but they have all of these exotic ices on their surfaces, in particular the molecular nitrogen ice. You know, it turns out that that's still active, even at these very cold temperatures that we have in the Pluto system. And there's enough heat left over from the formation and from the radioactivity and the interior that you're seeing this incredible geological activity taking place even relatively recently on Pluto. Just explaining that, doing the detailed mathematical explanations and physics explanations, and also the chemistry, putting all of that together, is going to take at least, I would say, five years. Well, I really look forward to seeing what comes out next. Yeah, me too. You know, the funny thing is, uh, everybody thinks of last summer, oh, the New Horizons spacecraft flew by Pluto, and now that's behind us. And yeah, it's, it's true that the spacecraft is now way past Pluto, and the counter is over. But 
the data are just coming in now. This is what we went there for. Right. And that's coming down now. And that's the most exciting part of the mission for the science team. Even though Pluto is now behind us, we're also actually looking forward. You know, we hope that NASA is going to prove an extended mission phase for New Horizons. We're going deeper into the Kuiper Belt, and we have an opportunity on January the 1st, 2019. Remember that date. Okay. Where we can fly by another Kuiper Belt object, something in a completely different class than what Pluto and all the objects in the Pluto system are. Right. That's so exciting. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Okay, well, thank you. Hal Weaver is a project scientist on the New Horizons mission. He and his colleagues write about the latest data from Pluto. You can read about Pluto's geological features, surface composition, atmosphere, and interaction with space. And, of course, more on its tiny moons. Free this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.